I think when I had the first, my first child, our son, I was fully expecting to be overlooked or I, I knew how demanding the roles were and I thought that I may have been too high a risk for them to put in some of these roles when I had small children, but they didn't. And I was so grateful to Lord Jandron and Lord Geit, who themselves had children and daughters, and they were absolutely wonderful. And they offered me promotions, even when I was, I just had a baby or I was having another baby. It didn't really make a difference. And without them supporting me through that period of my life, I wouldn't have had the privilege of having such fantastic work and the privilege of being a mother. And so, you know, I had two wonderful male mentors. And welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future program, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Samantha Cohen is CEO of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council, the business network of the Commonwealth. Prior to this, Sam served in the Royal Household for nearly two decades as Assistant and Deputy Private Secretary to Her Majesty the Queen, having held a previous role as Head of Royal Communications for the Queen's Household. After working on the delivery of the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in London in 2018, Sam served as Private Secretary to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex for 18 months. Sam previously held positions with the Minister for Mining and Energy and the Minister for Indigenous Affairs in the Australian Government, the country of her birth. Sam currently also serves as co-chair of the climate change charity Cool Earth and is a trustee of the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. In 2016, Samantha was appointed Commander of the Royal Victorian Order, which recognises distinguished personal service to the monarch. She is also a proud judge for the Woman of the Future Programme Awards. I grew up in Brisbane in Queensland, Australia, and I was the eldest of five children. And I had a wonderful upbringing. We had lots of fun. We had a dog. We did lots of holidays, camping, walking in the bush, being with our family. It was a very simple upbringing, but it was really full of fun and love and warmth and chaos. The chaos of a big family is what I remember most. Were you the eldest of the five? Yes, I was the eldest of the five and I was probably overly responsible and would always be the teacher when we played school, obviously. But it was fantastic and I had three brothers and a sister, so there was lots of rough and tumble and good fun. And we had an extended family around both sets of grandparents lived nearby. So it was a very good Aussie, wholesome upbringing, I would say. 
And did you enjoy school? What were you like at school? Were you a bookworm or were you more kind of sporty or were you a little bit of a jack of all trades? I, I was definitely a jack of all trades. I was definitely an all-rounder. I went to a Catholic school. My schools were Catholic, which I absolutely loved. I loved the system and the, the rules. I loved rules for some reason. I thought that that probably made me feel safe. I liked sport. I was in the swimming team and the tennis team, and I was never the best, but I was always, you know, reasonably good. Uh, I was a debater. I appeared in plays. I was an all-rounder, and uh, I was never, you know, ducks, or I didn't excel uh, academically particularly. I was good in some areas, but I, ha I think I was a general all-rounder. So what was your first job out of education? Did you go on to university? And then how did that jump off into how you entered the working world? Yes, well, I went to university. I went to the University of Queensland and I did an arts degree with a double major in journalism. And I had always loved English and writing at school. And I used to write poems obsessively. I've, I've still got books of poems uh, that I would write on all different subjects, happy, sad, uh, very diverse range, most of them quite terrible now when I look back at them. But uh, I had an obsession with poetry and then writing. And so I had determined fairly early on that I wanted to be a journalist. And that was a great passion of mine and I very much enjoyed my journalism course at the University of Queensland and it was very challenging and we did work experience on local newspapers and I, I suppose I had the bug for being a journalist and learning about the world. So when I finished university I felt that I had had a very sheltered upbringing and I didn't know very much about the world at all which was true. So I went backpacking with my best friend, we went to Europe and went Euroling and I tried to visit as many countries as possible. And the more I learned, I think the more I was curious and I had this insatiable appetite for learning about different cultures and countries, because I think while Australia is very multicultural, where I grew up, it is not as multicultural and certainly not as multicultural as it is now. And so I think it was, it was a shock in many ways because I went out into the big wide world. I'd never left Australia until I was 21, which seems extraordinary now. I mean, we didn't need to because we had, you know, our holidays, we spent up the road camping and we had everything we needed there. So in that respect, we were very lucky. But I think I knew that I needed to round off my personal education. And when I'd finished this extended tour of Europe, I decided to come back and start my career as a journalist. So I started a cadetship at a daily newspaper, which I loved, and that was my first proper job. So do you feel it was really important for you as part of your educative process to actually have some lived experience as well, to, like you say, go and physically see the world and be exposed to different people, different cultures, different approaches and ways of working. And I guess then that's seemingly fed into how your career trajectory carried on. Yes, I, it did. I mean, I think when I was at university, we we looked at so many issues and all from a, an academic perspective. And I think the Vietnam War loomed quite large in terms of journalists that we admired and something that was in the living memory of a lot of Australians at the time. And 
I felt that I, I had no experience like that. And I had this romantic vision of being a war correspondent. And I thought oh, I would like to, uh, my family is very public service orientated. Most of them are doctors and there's generations of doctors in my family. So I felt I wanted to do something to help people. I wanted to do something that was in some way in service. And I felt that being a war correspondent, foreign correspondent would have been good because I would have told people about these issues and conflicts that were going on around the world. But I had had this very sheltered upbringing and I knew nothing about anything. And I was acutely aware of that. Uh, so I think, yes, it did set me up for the trajectory of my life because I just, uh, it was very hard to go home <laughs> because I kept on learning and there was always more <laughs> to discover. And you ended up working for the Australian government. I did. I, uh, it started because I was working on a daily newspaper called the Sunshine Coast Daily. I was a cadet journalist, which I absolutely loved. And I was asked to attend an interview with a man called Linton Crosby, who is now uh, quite well known in the UK because he became the campaign organiser for the current Prime Minister. Boris Johnson many years later but at that stage he was a political campaign organizer in Australia he invited me to an interview and asked as a I had graduated from being a cadet journalist and asked if I'd like to come and do some political campaigning and I didn't quite know what he wanted me to do but I thought it sounded terribly exciting and so I said yes and went to work with him and that was in the lead in to the election that saw Prime Minister John Howard elected in Australia. And I was involved uh, with a number of other people who trained as journalists in helping to, um, we ran marginal seats, we looked after marginal seats and John Howard was elected as Prime Minister. And then we were offered positions in government because we'd been working with the then opposition. And that was the most wonderful opportunity we were offered. Was there any part of you that was intimidated at all by that offer? I suppose now we talk about imposter syndrome as something that both men and women can suffer from. When he made that, when he laid out his intentions to be planned and wanting you to be involved and come on board with what he was doing, was there any part of you that was like, oh, okay, this is exciting, but I'm not sure, or is that not really part of your psyche? Well, strangely enough, I, I was always attracted by things that sounded like an adventure and sounded as if they would be interesting and stimulated and exciting. And I grew up in a household with very strong women. So my grandmother on one side had always worked. She was widowed at a very early age and had three small children. And she had carved out this fantastic career for herself. And earned her own money and built a, a really wonderful life really and so she was very present in my life and she always made me feel as though everything was possible and my mother as well had a very good career and when I was at university my mother was a university lecturer there and uh, she was lecturing in the government department so I would go into the refectory at lunchtime and I'd see my mother sitting there and I'd be with my friends and I thought I'd always think oh should I sit with my mother or should I stay with my friends and so I was very lucky because I had strong career oriented women in my life and to answer your question 
no, I didn't ever think that. I didn't ever. <laughs> Maybe I should have. It's great that you didn't, to be honest. <laughs> this is quite refreshing. So reports suggest, tell me if this is wrong, that while you're on a trip to London in 2001, you rather fortuitously came across a job for a media minder at Buckingham Palace press office. Is that true? Yes, it is true. So I had come to London. I had subsequently worked for the Australian government and a couple of two ministers that I, I was working for had had to resign, so I'd lost my job a couple of times in succession, and I thought, well, it's probably time to take a break from politics. So I came to London and I had been doing a temporary contract, and I thought, well, I'll probably leave after that. And then I saw a an advertisement in PR Week, and it was for a communications officer at Buckingham Palace. Just to roll back on that, you're talking about being made redundant, essentially. I've actually been made redundant three times in five years in recent history. I'm not redundant now, happily. But I always say that it took me a while to actually get into my mind that it wasn't me that was redundant, because, I mean, the word redundant means there is no use for you, essentially, and that it's the role and that it's part of a maybe a bigger picture plan. But how, how did you find that? Were you quite pragmatic or not? Well... I think I was because the circumstances were such that you knew that when you were working for ministers, if they lost their seat and they could no longer be in parliament, then it wasn't your fault. So I was very lucky because all the staff were then made redundant. And most times, I mean, I was lucky enough the first time to be picked up by another minister who was a woman, actually a wonderful woman, the first treasurer of Queensland and deputy premier and she was a great role model so I think I would feel like that if it was usual circumstances but mm. I think you go into the political world knowing it's high risk in terms of your job security so I didn't feel that at the time. And outside of your control so you literally yes. could do nothing about it? Absolutely yeah. Okay so let's go back to Buckingham Palace and yeah. Day one at Buckingham Palace. What's that like walking through the doors and starting work? Well, yes, I remember I had been at my job and I was called for an interview and I was so taken aback. And I thought to myself, well, it's highly unlikely I'm going to get the job. So I need to enjoy the experience. And this will be a really wonderful story to tell my grandchildren that I went to an interview in Buckingham Palace. So I was very focused on that and I didn't expect any more from it apart from the experience of going through the gates. And I think the biggest shock I had was that I had been wearing a trouser suit. And when I came into Buckingham Palace, I realised that none of the other women were wearing trousers. Ooh. And I thought, oh goodness, I've really ruined any chance I may have had so that was um that was quite confronting but it was a wonderful opportunity and I was really lucky enough to be taken forward in the interview process which I didn't expect at all. And you went on to spend nearly two decades with them as a family can you tell me a little bit more about the roles that you had there and what they entailed and because it was communications but then you were also private secretary as well so yes. could you also maybe explain a bit more about the juxtaposition of how or how you transfer from one to the other and how that played out 
Yes, I started as a press officer on a two-year contract because they were looking for additional press officers in advance of the Golden Jubilee, which was in 2002, and I joined in 2001. So they were looking for people to support that public relations journey. So I thought that I had a two-year contract. I enjoyed the work enormously. I mean, it was a huge privilege and it was so varied. And we were working towards this big Golden Jubilee celebration in 2002. And it was exciting and we had a goal. And when we got to that delivery point, which was a concert in the gardens of Buckingham Palace and the Queen travelled all over the country meeting people and visiting villages and counties and it was a wonderful thing to behold really and I was fortunate enough to be asked if I would extend my contract after that so I was born actually in the UK so I have a British passport because my father had studied here when I was born so I was able to extend my stay so I extended my stay and I ended up staying for as you say 18 and a half years nearly 19 years and I moved through the ranks in the press office, as they called it back then, and I became the deputy press secretary to the Queen. And then I became head of communications, which meant you looked after the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh and you managed the team. And that was an absolutely fantastic time. I loved that job. It was really such a wonderful job. The Queen was traveling a lot in those days. We did some wonderful tours. I was fortunate to go back to Australia with the Queen, which was a moment of great pride for my parents and my family. And to the point I made earlier about traveling and discovering the world, I was able to do that with the Royal Household. And that was just an adventure beyond my wildest dreams. And being the Queen's press secretary was such a privilege and an honor. And we were meeting some incredible people, great world leaders, you had such a privileged vantage point because we would visit a country and it would be a state visit and we would stay with whichever leader was hosting us. And it was a wonderful way to learn more about that country, about its people. And the Queen, I mean, she's an incredible role model. I mean, she's a leader and a CEO and she's so professional and watching her work is the best education anyone could ever have. So I really enjoyed that time as her press secretary running the palace press office. And then I had reached a point really where I thought, well, I, I have been in the media arena at the palace for a long time. And it's quite intense, as you can imagine, because you're always on duty. You have to take calls on weekends and all hours of the day. And you're dealing with quite assertive media, shall we say, on a regular basis. So it's quite a tough job. And I thought, well, I've done a good stint here. And I was starting to think, what next? And I was then invited to become an assistant private secretary to prepare for the Diamond Jubilee, which was in 2012. And I said, yes, okay, well, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. That's a different part of the institution. You work in the Queen's private office and you help with the red boxes and the constitutional work and her role 
as a constitutional monarch and all of what that entails. And we had another goal working towards the Diamond Jubilee and I accepted that role. And again, that was on a two year test period, if you like, until the Diamond Jubilee. But I loved it so much that I stayed for eight years in that role, which was uh, the most wonderful job. I mean, I loved my job. I literally bounced out of bed every morning and thought, I'm so excited by what I'm doing today. And even if it was a boring day, you know, I would love the documents that came in because the Queen is Queen of 15 other countries in addition to the UK. And we would have reports coming in from the Governor General of Tuvalu. And we would, you know, there might be a constitutional crisis in Papua New Guinea that you would have to talk to the Queen about or someone would phone from Papua New Guinea or there was always something incredibly interesting happening. And, you know, that was just such a treat and a privilege. And I, I know so many people don't really enjoy their jobs. So I felt that I was incredibly lucky. I think also it just goes to show how much the Queen and the royal family must have trusted you because those roles are enormous, aren't they? And like you were saying, you're probably sacrificing an awful lot of your own work-life balance to make it work. But the Queen actually appointed you commander of the Royal Victorian Order, didn't she? Which recognises distinguished personal service to the monarch. So I think it, I think it goes to prove that you're very good well, I don't know how do you say it. I was going to say friends, but it doesn't seem quite right. But, you know, you, she, she trusted you and you were part of, her, you know, a big part of her life and someone that she trusted and respected and appreciated your integrity, I would assume. Well, it's fair to say that the Queen's had many, many me's in her life because she's been in service in that role for so long. Next year, it will be 70 years on the throne. So yeah. I never allow myself to think that my contribution is in any way different to all the people who've come before me. And she's had some very, very distinguished private secretaries and she has had Australian private secretaries. She had one called Sir Bill Heseltine, who I am still in touch with, who was wonderful. And another one who died, actually, he was a press secretary. So I think that what we probably bring is a Commonwealth perspective, you know, we bring another perspective, which I think the Queen recognises. I mean, that's what she is so brilliant at, is understanding that different people bring their different expertise in this perspective to this role that she has. And I think you also have to understand that it's a family and an institution. It's not just an institution, and it's different from other British institutions in that you need to apply that sensitivity and that overlay. And I think I don't know, maybe coming from a largish family helps <laughs> give that appreciation. But the Queen is the most fantastic boss and she really understands people. And every day is a learning experience. It's wonderful. And she did also make you private secretary for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I know we can't necessarily talk about that, but I also know that did the royals give you the nickname Samantha the Panther <laughs> because you're, you're fierce and feisty. Is that right? I really like that. <laughs> well, it's a really silly story, actually. And the reason it came up again when I took on the role with Prince Harry, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, was because there was nothing else on the files. And uh, it came about because when I was in the press office, and I think I was in the deputy role, a tabloid journalist, I won't say where from, I actually helped to organise one of the first women-only events at the palace. And I was 
it was very difficult to compile a guest list because everybody wanted to come and it had never been done before. And we had a whole range of eclectic women from Kate Moss to Cherie Blair, you know, very wonderful, accomplished women. And so we had a lot of people calling and agents and saying, why isn't my, my talent, why isn't my woman on your guest list? So anyway, I did have a slightly terse discussion with the tabloid journalist who was asking me why wasn't so-and-so invited. And I think the third time she rang back, I, you know, I said, look, I'm sorry, I can't help you anymore. And uh, that terse conversation was interpreted. She decided she'd write a story anyways. The headline was Samantha the Panther Bears Her Claws. And, uh, and I think she constructed a story, this female journalist, saying that I had rejected some people from the guest list and wasn't it terrible. And she made up a lot of facts about my life. She, and she said I had two children. At that time, I had no children and all sorts of things. But that's where it came from. And it sat on the, uh, on the files. And then 18 years later, it was the only thing that was ever written about me. And 18 years later, when I joined the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, and obviously they were very high profile, they found this on the files. But no, the royal family didn't give me that name. <laughs> it did surprise me. I did wonder. Yeah. Right. So as you say, I know that you've referenced your grandmother and that you're from a big family and things like that. But throughout your life and maybe your career in particular, is there a person that stands out for you as having been a bit of a guiding light? You know, we talk a lot about mentoring and coaching and those kinds of things. Did you have that person or has it been multiple people that have just fed in little tidbits as you've gone along? Well, funnily enough, my mentors have been men really in the later stages of my career I suppose in that mid-career I referred early on I worked for the first female treasurer of the state of Queensland Joan Sheldon who I'm still in touch with today and she was a wonderful woman and she was very feisty and very clever and she gave me great opportunities but because of the areas in which I worked they tended to be quite male dominated so the political arena was quite male dominated and when I worked there in Queensland in the Australian government and then when I came to the palace it was also very male dominated and it's different now I mean there's been massive change but in terms of senior women there weren't very many so I was really lucky to have two very wonderful male mentors who really supported me when I had children I had three children while I was at the palace and I think when I had the first, my first child, our son, I was fully expecting to be overlooked or I, I knew how demanding the roles were and I thought that I may have been too high a risk for them to put in some of these roles when I had small children, but they didn't and I was so grateful to Lord Janvran and Lord Guite, who themselves had children and daughters, and they were absolutely wonderful. And they offered me promotions, even when I was, I just had a baby or I was having another baby, it didn't really make a difference. And without them supporting me through that period of my life, I wouldn't have had the privilege of having such fantastic work and the privilege of being a mother. And so, you know, I had two wonderful male mentors. 
It's so genuinely heartwarming to hear because you just the antithesis of that is what you hear more of, isn't it? So to hear that they actually supported you in those choices and those big life moments is fantastic. Well, I think I learned a really valuable lesson. So Lord Jandron was my first boss and he offered me a promotion to the Queen's press secretary. And I thought to myself, you know, we'd had one child and I knew that my husband and I wanted to have another baby and possibly a third one. And I thought to myself, I, I think I just need to be really honest with him. And I said, um, I said, Robin, I'm so grateful. You know, this is a wonderful role to be offered, but you need to know that I think we're going to have another baby. And I wasn't pregnant. We hadn't actually confirmed that we were having a second baby but I said look I'm sure that for the sake of continuity and you might want to look for someone who may not leave you in this situation and I was so honest I mean I think I blushed and he blushed and it was you know a really awkward conversation to have with a man but to his credit I mean it was wonderful he said thank you for letting me know thank you and we'll work around that and for me, I think that was a really pivotal moment in my career because I knew that that honesty had led me to a much better outcome. And I think if I was talking to younger women, I'd say, although it might seem contrary or counterintuitive, I think it's best to be honest with whoever you're working with because they appreciate it. I really agree. Across all the work that you've done, is there any one thing in particular that you're proud of or that stands out for you? Well, I'm really proud of, I mean, literally last week, I, with a group of former palace employees, we have built a project called the Queen's Green Canopy, which is a nationwide tree planting initiative in the Queen's honour for the Platinum Jubilee next year. And I thought it would be a very good idea to harness all the Jubilee experience I've had, which is, uh, I think this will be my third Jubilee. And the fact that actually the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are original environmentalists. I mean, obviously the Duke of Edinburgh with his work through WWF and he's been very outspoken about the environment and conservation for his whole life. But the Queen also, I think, she has always been incredibly frugal and understands the value of not overusing our resources. And while I was at the palace, the Queen agreed to support a project we put together called the Queen's Commonwealth Canopy, where the Queen invited 54 countries of the Commonwealth to dedicate forest to be protected in her name. So I'm very proud of the fact that the Queen was very involved. She would write letters to the leaders of these countries and ask them to help protect forest and they would write back and we've got a wonderful collection of forest. I think there are 52 countries signed up now. And the Queen is incredibly agile and she's able to see what is going on in the world and what areas need support. So I'm very proud of the fact that we have used her leadership and all the experience to create a lasting legacy that benefits Commonwealth countries and now with the Queen's Green Canopy will create a wonderful legacy for the next generation here. 
And how did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved with them? I first heard about it through Pinky Lilani, as most people did. I met Pinky, she invited me to one of her events and then, which I was very impressed by and I met some wonderful women and I think I was quite at an early stage in my career and I was not very good at networking and Pinky brought me into her world and I went to her home for one of her famous curries and she was so supportive and she really made me appreciate the role I was in and I think a lot of the time we spend our time with our heads down working and we don't look up to see a how lucky we are to have whatever job we have and be all the other women around us who could help us if we only got to know them a bit better so she was very good and then we developed some women of the future programs and events at the palace so I worked with her we had a couple of receptions for women of the future and I was a judge I've been involved for six seven years okay I just have some quick fire questions to finish so hopefully these aren't too taxing for you <laughs> okay what would you describe as your greatest success oh this is the one I can't uh, think of uh can I come back to that yeah of course <laughs> failure is that easier or <laughs> what is your greatest failure oh god failure um not finishing my master's degree failing oh. my driving test the first time what was your master's degree in I was doing a master's of communication and government uh you didn't finish I think you've done all right though haven't you let's be honest <laughs> well I decided I just wanted to keep working instead of I was impatient. <laughs> okay, the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Kindness means everything to me. I wouldn't have achieved anything without the kindness of strangers and friends. And I think I say that particularly as someone who came to this country and started really from scratch here in Korea terms and people have been incredibly kind and welcomed me into their families and their personal lives as well as professional lives and I think kindness is everything and I think kindness in leadership is really what separates true leaders from the rest. Do you think is undervalued as a, as a trait? or characteristic? I think it's incredibly undervalued because I think that kindness reflects people's inner values. And I think people take on leadership roles for many reasons, sometimes the wrong reasons. And I think kindness is a signal of an inner value system that goes beyond the job title. And it's like a green light or a rainbow above someone's head that says, this person is a good person you know they might be in this role or at this point in their lives but wherever they are they will be a good person and that's um kindness is like beacons and if you always try to find kind people i think that together you can be much more productive as well is there anything that scares you Driving on the right-hand side of the road. <laughs> Are you a good driver? 
now that you've passed your test. (laughs) I'm a terrible driver, as my husband and my children and my friends will tell you I'm a terrible driver. Ironically, I many years ago, my husband is a skydiver and I wanted to try and participate in some of his hobbies. So I did a skydiving course and I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I managed to complete the skydiving course and jump out of a plane 12 times and become a qualified solo skydiver. Mind you, I've never skydived again once I qualified. So I could do that, but I'm absolutely terrified of driving on the right-hand side of the road. (laughs) Could you be more polar opposite? Like chuck yourself out of a plane, fine. Don't get me to drive on the right-hand side of the road. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. I know, I know. Okay, what's left on your to-do list? Oh, I don't know. I think that's the, um, I I don't have a to-do list. I think that I've always tried to live my life to squeeze every moment of adventure and opportunity out of it. And so consequently, I don't actually have a to-do list. I think that I've been incredibly fortunate and blessed and lucky and I've had the most incredible experiences. So anything else that comes along is an absolute bonus and uh, I'm really happy with the current job I have and I don't have a to-do list. Any final thoughts on greatest success? Considering your phenomenal career and probably one of the most remarkable women that I've spoken to as part of this podcast. There must be a little, oh, must be a little tidbit in there. It's just such oh, very varied stuff. And also the fact that you balance it all. And it annoys me when people ask, like women ask other women this question, but genuinely, I, I have one child, you have three, and you were basically running the royal family. <laughs> so I don't know. No, I wasn't. I, have I wasn't. No there are idea how you done there. it. No, there are hundreds of people there. Um, I think I find, you know, weirdly, it's hard to talk about success which is probably, you know, you talked about imposter syndrome. I have had that on and off. I didn't when you asked me if I'd had it, but I have Mm. had it during my life. And it's a bit the same with success because I, A, most of my career has been in the background. So it's never my success. It's always someone else's success, but the result of a team effort. So I can't... I mean, there's many, many moments that I, or projects that I have thought were successful, but I can't think, I don't think of it like, I don't think of it in terms of my greatest success, if that makes sense. Um, perfect sense. Everything has been achieved with a, a lot of people. And I think that personally, my greatest success would be my family because I think that if I had achieved many many things in my career but I didn't have my little family for me personally I don't think I would feel as good as I do today so people to share it with yeah most important thing Thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy and it's been brilliant speaking to you. And thank you for all the insights that you've offered and inspiration as well. Thank you very much. 
Well, thank you. It's really nice to be asked, Kim, and you're a great interviewer, and <laughs> you are. You're very empathetic and warm and lovely, and it's a, it's a, been a real pleasure for me. And as I said, I never get to talk about myself like this. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.